My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jamie Keach, and you are listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today on the podcast, I had the chance to sit down and chat with none other than the CEO of Wheaton Precious, Randy Smallwood. Now, Wheaton Precious Metals is one of the biggest uh, and most successful royalty and streaming companies that exists in the sector today. It very much pioneered the model, and we get into depth about the history of royalties and streaming uh, the birth of Wheaton Precious, and Randy has been there since the very beginning. Uh, he started in corporate development with Wheaton Precious, but he is a geological engineer by training. He's worked in nearly every stage of the mining life cycle, all the way from staking claims to geological exploration to um, development and operations, and he's really done it all, and now he is one of the pioneers and, of course, leaders in the streaming space. Now, up until mid-2017, Wheaton Precious Metals was actually known as Silver Wheaton, and for some reason I have had a very, very difficult time getting that through my head, and you are going to hear me repeatedly call Wheaton Precious Silver Wheaton, And Randy very graciously corrects me time and time again and does so without making me look too stupid, so that was nice. But for the record, it is now Wheaton Precious Metals, and it has been since May 2017. I had a great time talking with Randy. He really is a font of knowledge on the mining industry in general and streaming and royalties in particular. I think any investors at home, I think anyone working in the sector has to listen to this conversation, and there are going to be a ton of takeaways uh, in terms of the kind of things you want to be looking at when you're deploying your money, or if you're working in the sector, how you want to manage your career. Randy has a lot of great advice on all these things. So without further ado, let me please introduce Randy Smallwood, the CEO of Wheaton Precious Metals. Randy, welcome to the podcast today. A pleasure. Thank you. So we are sitting here in your office. We're on the 35th floor. What's the building called? M&P Tower. And we're having, I think, probably the best view of Vancouver Harbor that I've seen to date. This is what you come into every day. Yeah, although I, I uh, hate to, you know, it, it does, you don't notice it because you get so wrapped up in work and uh, and so on and stuff like that. So it's refreshing when someone new comes in and points out how beautiful it is. And we're, it is a beautiful city. Yeah, and we're just sort of coming off a bit of a snowpocalypse that we've had here that's managed <laughs> to shut down the city for the last couple of days. Um, I want to start talking about Silver Wheaton and you. And for people who've never heard of Silver Wheaton before and they've not heard about what you're doing. Can you give us the 30,000 foot view of what Silver Wheaton 
is and their role within the mining industry. Well, and, and it's now Wheaton Precious, and so I do want to really reinforce that side, but we did start with uh, Silver Wheaton. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, don't worry, I'm still batting about 50% in terms of uh, Silver Wheaton versus Wheaton Precious. I, I mean, actually have in here why the name changed, so yeah. it clearly hasn't been ingrained in my brain yeah, in the yeah, way no. it should be yet, so apologies. Wheaton Precious. Wheaton Precious. <laughs> well, but it did start off as Silver Wheaton. Um, you know, my background, I used to work for a company called Gold Corp. Uh, at that time, it was Wheaton River, but uh, shortly after we created... Uh, Silver Wheaton, we, uh, we did a reverse takeover in Gold Corp. And, and really what we were looking for at, at Gold Corp was a source of capital to continue growing our company. And we had all this byproduct silver production uh, down in Mexico. And so the whole concept of streaming Silver Wheaton, we created the business model, which uh, is basically taking non-core byproduct and crystallizing that value uh, forward into a large upfront payment, which then allows us to continue onto our core focus. And, and I would argue that Silver Wheaton was probably the biggest single contributor of growth capital to the entire Gold Corp story um, in terms of the value that delivered, hard value that uh, you know allowed Gold Corp to invest back into the industry itself. So, so I'd like to talk about um, Wheaton River, Gold Corp, Silver Wheaton. But first, can you give us... Um, just a very brief description of what a stream is and, and maybe what a royalty is as well. Sure. Um, a st- let's start off with the royalty because the royalty has is uh, is, is been around for a much longer time and probably a little bit easier to, to understand just because of that history. A royalty is really, uh, and, and there's many types of royalties, but most of them are considered NSR royalties, net smelter return royalties. And it basically is just a hard percentage of whatever uh, revenue a mine produces net of the smelter. So when a material gets sent to either a smelter or a refinery, whatever money gets paid back to the mining company, a percentage of that gets delivered to the royalty holder. Pretty simple, uh, very simple to manage, uh, passively managed generally because you just get paid cash. And so there's no active management. You typically don't have, in most cases, you don't have, it's not an agreement with the operator. It's actually something that's registered on land. And so you don't have a contractual working partnership with the, uh, with the actual operator itself. And so there's definitely some weaknesses to royalties. There are some, some strengths, but there's definitely some weaknesses to royalties. Um, a stream, on the other hand, is a, is, it's a partnership. It's a contractual agreement between two parties, two independent parties, where um, the operator, the, the mine owner and the operator, uh, is looking to crystallize some value. And typically a stream is focused on a byproduct, and a non-core byproduct. Um, the reason we started in the silver space is because most silver is produced as a byproduct. 75% of silver does not come from silver mines. It comes from lead-zinc mines. It comes from copper mines. It comes from gold mines. And so... The opportunity to go and approach these lead-zinc companies, these base metal companies, or, or even gold companies, and to purchase their non-core byproduct silver off of them. Uh, and, and what we do with this stream is get access to that metal. Um, we in our company have focused on very high-quality assets, but access to that metal, we deliver that metal for a fixed cost. Um, there's the upfront payment when we purchase the right, when we purchase the stream, and that's our fixed capital cost. And then as the ounces are being delivered to us, we make a production payment. And that production payment is also fixed by contract. Um, It can either be defined, traditionally it was always defined as a fixed price with a 
a fixed inflation accelerator of 1% starting in the fourth year. Uh, more recent contracts, it's been more of a fixed margin where we're actually, uh, we pay as a production as each ounce gets delivered to us, uh, 20% of the spot price or, 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 or a number as close to that. So, but the, the advantage of a stream is that it's commodity specific. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a partnership. Uh, it's because it's contract based, it has incredible flexibility, much more flexibility than a, than a royalty. Um, and, um, and it allows much larger magnitudes of, of, of value to be created. And it also leaves, um, if, if you're a gold company or if you're a copper company, it leaves all the copper with that copper company. It leaves all the gold with that gold company. And, uh, and, and so it just, it, you know, it is focused on an encore uh, byproduct, which, which really can be simplified as portfolio optimization. Anytime anyone has a collection of assets, uh, whether they're independent mines or independent products from uh, from single mines, um, what we're looking at is is a means of crystallizing the value of a non-core uh, byproduct or a non-core asset, and so it uh, it's 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 essentially killed the royalty industry. Uh, you don't see new royalties done anymore. Um, there's still existing royalties that are traded back and forth and bought back and forth, but uh, I can think of in the last 12 years only one new royalty. Um, that was ever come into place, and that was a misguided company that made some mistakes and, and actually uh, punished their shareholders because they would have got better value for an equivalent metal tied up into a stream. And so, uh, and so, uh, it's definitely all the royalty companies, all the traditional royalty companies out there. They're actually now streaming companies. The bulk of their revenue, the bulk of their net asset value, is associated with streams. And so, uh, it's a very strong business model. That uh, the evidence shows that it's much stronger than traditional royalties. So was Silver Wheaton, uh, now Wheaton Precious, was that the first company to employ the streaming model, as you said earlier? Yes, it was. So um, we came up with the concept. Um, it's actually a, you know, a bit of color. We, at that time, Wheaton River also owned a uh, uh, 37.5% share in the Alambrera operations, which is a big copper gold mine down in Argentina. The bulk of the revenue was copper, but it had some, some healthy gold credits, too. And the, the main operator was a company called MIM, Mount Isa Mining, out of, uh, out of Australia. And we spent uh, a better part of six months trying to actually do a, 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 a commodity swap, which, which we would have argued would have been the, the first ever stream, where we were going to try and give them our share of uh, the copper, because we were a gold company, yeah. MIM was a copper company. So okay. we were going to try and give them our share of the copper with a fixed base cost on a per pound basis. And they were going to give us uh, a, a substantive portion of their share of the gold, uh, again, with a fixed cost. And so we spent six months trying to come up with the first ever stream mm-hmm. uh, with MIM. Um, in the end, it, uh, it collapsed. We just neither, neither company was willing to take the price risk uh, on, on the other commodity. Sure, and yeah. And so we just couldn't come to agreement. And actually, I should say it was MIM that really backed away from it because they weren't willing to take the price risk on the gold side. And so, um, you know, after six months of effort, we kind of uh, looked at it and decided that maybe it made more sense for us to uh, create the entity that was going to buy the other metal. And that's where the concept within Wheaton River slash Gold Corp, uh, the concept of Silver Wheaton came from. The concept of streaming came from was we, we looked around our portfolio. We discovered we had a mine in Mexico that was a gold mine, but it produced substantive silver. Yeah. And when we looked at the silver market, we... Uh, we recognize that perhaps uh, a profitable silver equity uh, might might have some appeal within the uh, within the investing market space, 
And so we took the uh, the first ever stream was on the San Damas mine down in Mexico, uh, Tayotita and San Damas. And it was for the 100% of the silver production from that mine would, would be spun into silver wheat and as a new creation. So that got spun out into its own entity and then that was listed eventually? Well, it was listed right at right that away. point. Yeah, we took over a, a shell and dropped it in. So it was listed and started trading as silver wheat and closed the first transaction and... Uh, and then sort of sat back. We didn't have any yeah. full-time employees. It was kind of a subsidiary. It was majority owned by Wheaton River. Um, at, at that point, we owned close to 80% of the stock. I think it was 78% at that point. So there was only about a 20% free float. But we in, uh, immediately uh, conducted a couple of uh, uh, financings and uh, and did another uh, transaction uh, shortly thereafter with Lundin Mining at the Zinkgruven yeah. Mine in Sweden. And uh, eventually worked our way down to about a 65% uh, shareholding in Silver Wheat, and so still majority co- controlled. Ultimately, by 2008, uh, Gold Corp, Wheaton River turned into Gold Corp. Uh, Gold Corp sold off the remaining interest in uh, in uh, in Silver Wheat at that time for uh, uh, somewhere close to uh, well, altogether about two and a half billion dollars were raised by the creation uh, for Gold Corp by the creation of Silver Wheat. So, okay, I wanna step back when you first so i have two questions out of this so the first when you when you first started silver wheaton what was investor perception of that was it a hard sell to people to see the value in that of this sort of this silver stream or did people kind of get it immediately and were were rushing to get in there uh yes and yes um (laughs) (laughs) no the uh there's no doubt the streaming for the first and i'm gonna say for the first six or seven years people looked at streaming and thought that was i've always said the simplicity of streaming is very confusing most people think it's way more complicated than what it is Uh, it is actually a very simple business structure we make a payment up front and for that we get a percentage of whatever metal comes from that mine and when that metal is delivered to us we make a production payment on a per ounce basis now, because it's a percentage of whatever that mine produces, if the mine grows or expands or is an expiration success, we get that benefit. Yep. But when we purchase that right, that's our capital cost. And when we make that production payment as the ounces are delivered to us, we that's our operating cost. And so our cost risk is just about non-existent from an investor's perspective. And so so that was very attractive to the investing space, to, to be able to invest into uh, an equity that had all the optionality of a traditional mining company and all the upside optionality in terms of exploration success, expansion potential, commodity price, but there's no cost risk. Um, you know, uh, we've heard it more than once. That sounds too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but time has shown that, that it is true and that we can deliver that to our shareholders and that it makes sense. And so, so it was a tough sell to begin with. I have to say that at that time, the silver market traditional silver investors didn't have a lot of opportunities. Most of the silver companies, in fact, I, I would argue all of the silver companies at the time were losing money because the price of silver was around 5 to $6 an ounce, right. and they were not producing profitably. So here we come, and all of a sudden we're delivering silver for $4 an ounce in a $6 market, the first profitable silver company in a very long time. It sure caught the eyes of the investors. So Silver Wheaton really took off pretty, pretty rapidly. And, and how long did it take before you know this was something you know, a side project totally controlled by Wheaton River to becoming sort of a standalone entity which had its own staff and own leadership there. Hmm. 
I would actually say it was probably 2007 where we where we truly set up Silver Wheaton as a standalone company. We we hired some support staff. Uh, in fact, we didn't have any any full time employees for the first year of that company, and then our first employee was actually hired down in in our international office, and uh, he handled all of our sales and, and such. And then we started putting some dedicated staff into the office in Vancouver, probably uh, late late 2005, early 2006. And so it was probably a year that it was just a, it was, we used to joke about it as being our weekend project. I'd focus on gold from Monday to Friday and then think about Silver Wheaton on Saturdays. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> okay. If I wasn't traveling somewhere looking at gold projects. And so definitely the focus for that first couple of years was building Gold Corp, Wheaton River into Gold Corp and then, and then growing Gold Corp. Um, in about 2006, um, you know, we started putting some effort into growing Silver Wheaton. Uh, up until then, I would say most of our growth in Silver Wheaton came from investment bankers that would look at the business model and mm-hmm. say, well, this is great. And they would bring us ideas. We weren't out knocking on doors. They would bring us ideas. And so, you know, very little growth in the first three years. Uh, but uh, from 2004, 2000, end of 2006... And early 2007, uh, we started staffing up. Peter Barnes became the uh, the CEO at that time. He came over as a, he was the CFO at Gold Corp. He became the CEO of Silver Wheaton in 2006, and he really started putting together a solid team, um, you know, uh, uh, of of individuals. And and uh, and I I kicked over to the company full time on 2007. Left Gold Corp. and came over early in 2007. And what was your initial role with Silver Wheaton? Um, uh, uh, executive Vice President of Corporate Development. So, so that was tasked with finding new streams and growing exactly. the company. Yeah. This is, it was exactly what I was responsible for at Gold Corp, and that was focused on the streaming industry. We were still, at that point, still 100% focused on silver, too. So, so I want to take a step back now uh, and talk a little bit more about your career trajectory leading up to that. Um, you're from BC, is that right, initially? Mm, actually, I was born in Alberta. Alberta, okay. Yeah, I was born in Grand Prairie, Alberta, northern Alberta. However, my parents had the wisdom to move to Vancouver when I was five years old, and uh, I've, uh, I get back up to northern Alberta for weddings and funerals and family reunions, and that's about it. And so uh, not too often, but, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, uh, I consider myself a West Coast. So what what brought you into the mining industry and what you know took you in, down that path initially? Well, it's interesting because you know I've I've got uh, I've got a lot of kids and uh, and I you know, try and push my kids to the point of always trying to pursue their passions. When I came out of high school, um, I uh, my you know my, my I started off in computer science studies, and uh, what I could tell very rapidly was that although I was good at it and I had definitely a skill set that sort of uh, uh, would have had some success in that space. It wasn't what I. It wasn't what I was passionate about. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I you know, that, that whole digital world just kind of, just kind of scared me off. I was always very active in the outdoors, uh, very active in sports, uh, skiing, soccer, rugby, all the way through my my teenage years. Um, lots of backpacking, lots of hiking trips, and so on. And so, so I basically uh, dropped out of the whole computer science program and bummed around. Had a couple of different jobs and but I spent probably three to four years finding something that I was passionate about and I actually got hired as a as a claim staker uh, back in in the early 80s yeah and um, and uh, within you know I still remember coming back from my first couple of days uh, you know trying to figure out why I'm getting paid for this it's exactly <laughs> what I was what I loved doing was enjoying the outdoors and uh, and seeing you know the whole travel aspect of it. And, Where uh, were you working then? Were you in, BC? in BC? Yeah, yeah, I was here in BC. So, so, so was, can you explain to people who are listening at home what a claim staker actually does? 
Well, uh, what it does now versus <laughs> now everything is, of course, on the internet, and you just do it by punching uh, dots on maps and paying a fee. But back in back in those days, you actually you had to if you were interested in exploring a piece of ground, the first way uh, that you would want to do any mineral exploration or prospecting on that ground, you had to have some type of a claim to that ground, and so you would actually make sure that no one else owned it already. But then you would have to walk the perimeter of the claim and blaze a trail with yep. with ID posts every 500 meters that gave the claim name and your name and your numbers. And then you would have to, once you finished that perimeter, you'd file a report with the, with, well, at that time it was called the Gold Commissioner, and, uh, and you would be awarded the right to do mineral exploration on that claim for a very small fee, um, but you still had to go through the physical work of actually staking those claims. And so it was incredibly physically demanding. I was probably in the best physical shape I've ever been in over a, about a two to three year period because I think I staked up a good, probably <laughs> altogether, it wouldn't surprise me if it was about four or five percent of BC cumulatively. <laughs> were, you, around, so. were you staking any claims for yourself or were you working for other no, companies working, going in? Working yeah. For this, yeah, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I'm, I've always been a bit of a hobbyist on this side and so I had a few claims of myself that I'd uh, staked up, but generally it was, uh, I, you know, within, within a few months, I've always been entrepreneurial. I didn't mention before, but I grew up, my dad's an auctioneer. And so okay. yeah, I grew yeah. up in the auction business and, uh, and my dad, you know, until, like until recently was quite upset that I never did make it. Antiques or business. farm equipment or uh, all actually sorts industrial or equipment industrial, and yeah. uh, freight damage goods and, uh, and lots of surplus highway equipment and stuff like that. And so, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a very, he had a very broad reaching business and it was an incredibly... Uh, great place to grow up because you know, if you ever want to understand anything about uh, entrepreneurialism, just hang around the auction hall for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's a it's constant deal making environment, and so so he was always disappointed that I never took over the family business. But but that entrepreneurial spirit had me. You know, I still remember my first job staking claims. Within six months, I had my own business mm-hmm. supplying that service to other companies, and and I had people working for me. And uh, I think the original company was called Alpine West Mineral Services, and uh, and you know within two three years had uh, ten to twelve people um, uh, on different crews staking claims for all the different expo- uh, you know uh, publicly listed. Most of them were Vancouver Stock Exchange, uh, uh, the original venture capital uh, exchange, but uh, just staking claims all over. BC, the Yukon, did some work in Alaska, but uh, but it was always complicated because of the cross-border issues, but most of the work was BC and the Yukon, and so traveled all over the Yukon and, B- and BC, um, staking claims and then also starting to do first-stage work and just sort of discovering my passion for mineral exploration. Because keep in mind, I don't have any, I haven't done any training or university right. or anything like that. So, so right now you like hiking and being outdoors and yeah, working exactly. for yourself. Yeah. What transitioned you, because you ended up becoming a geological engineer. That's right. So, so. Well, when was the point when you decided, you know, staking claims isn't enough, there's more to this business than that? Well, I'm going to give direct credit to a uh, pretty well, well-known uh, geologist who unfortunately just passed away about a year and a half ago, but his name was Peter Christopher. He's a consulting geologist based here in Vancouver, and uh, I was doing all of his uh, field work for him, and um, we were sitting up on Mount Sophia, which is up, it's a small little project uh, north of Trout Lake in the Kootenays, and... Uh, Halfway through the project, he looked at me and said, you know, yeah, business is good right now, but as soon as it dies, you're going to be out of work. Get your, pardon my language, get your ass back to university. You're too yeah. smart to be doing what you're doing. And how old were you at that point? Just 20, to place 24. Us? Okay. Uh, 24 when he woke me up. Uh, 25 when I started. And I, I started off at BCIT. I did a two-year mine engineering program at BCIT, the mining program. BCIT, an incredibly good school. Really sort of uh, um, lots of... 
hands-on experience. It's, you know, it's very good for that. Lots of field trips, visiting mines, visiting exploration projects, going out and doing geophysics in the field, not just studying it and such. And so, so going through BCIT for two years, and then I transferred over to, to UBC. Uh, well, I finished off BCIT and then went into UBC and spent three and a half years getting a, a geological engineering degree out of, uh, out of UBC. So can I ask, um, why geological engineering versus geology? Um, no, I'm, I'm definitely of the, uh, I'm definitely an engineer. I've, I've often said yeah. I'm, I'm an engineer in my brain and a geologist in my heart. Um, <laughs> uh, to me, geology is is intriguing because it is you know it's called a, it's generally classed as a science, but I actually think there's probably a it's the most artistic of the sciences. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely for every rule, for every law, for every principle. There is plenty of examples of break that. It's not like chemistry and physics and biology, and well, I would say biology also you know suffers a bit from that. But but you know geology is very unique because it takes so many attributes, but there's so many different contributing factors to geology. It's 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 got a continual challenge to it. And so so when I went through the BCIT mine engineering program, I mean you know coming into it, I didn't come from a mining family. I didn't know a lot about it. mining engineering. I thought that involved everything. Well, I could see quite rapidly that if you're a mining engineer you're you're going to work at a mine as a mining engineer yeah. and uh, and to me I've I've always prided myself on being more of a generalist than a specialist and uh, and the geological engineering side the engineering the math is incredibly easy for me the physics is incredibly easy for me and so uh, so the engineering side was was a plus um, but the most interesting course that I took at BCIT was my geology course it was the one that provided the most challenge for me and uh, and uh, and so hence the shift into geological engineering when I went into uh, UBC, and and absolutely loved it. Fell in love. Uh, you know, it's the it's the whole challenges. There's it doesn't matter how long you do this uh, this you know how long you work in the in the mining space. Geology is the biggest unknown. Uh, the, the 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 quest. The uh, the it's 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 what keeps me excited about it. So I think there's going to be a lot of people who kick me for what I'm about to say. Uh, I'm a mining engineer. Um, I have always thought, you know, the average mining engineer is worth 10 average geologists, but a great geologist is worth 100 mining engineers. Uh, I think that's be- very good. Because where the, like, the true, true value gets typically created yeah. by geologists. And engineers are phenomenal at optimization and eking that last yeah. ounce of value out. But, yeah. like, you know, the true creation in the industry is geologists. And, you know, similar to your story, I went to U of T for engineering thinking I would do geological engineering. And then the year after I got there, they eliminated it. Uh, and so there was only mining engineering after that. And I've always kind of been <laughs> crushed <laughs> that I don't know more about geology. So, Well, I, I, and I, I'm going to echo your, your comments there. Uh, you know, um, geology, because it's such an inexact science, it requires a bit of luck. It requires yeah. a bit of... Uh, now, I, I always go back to uh, one of my favorite quotes, which is, you know, it just seems like the harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so people that work hard tend to be luckier. And so you, you never back off on that. But yeah. So I'm going to skip ahead then because I have this in my notes here. Luck is such a huge part of the mining industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people that are serially lucky. You know, there are discoverers that make multiple discoveries, even though most never make never come close to making one Mm -hmm. so when you're running a company how do you optimize for luck how do you in a business where which is so contingent on things going right how do you expose yourself to the most 
potential for luck and the, the opportunity for serendipity? Well, I, I, I'm going to echo what I just finished saying. I, uh, you can't control the luck, but what you can control is the effort. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, I live and breathe this company. I don't work. There's no 40-hour work week. There's no 60-hour work week. There's no 80-hour work week. I, I think about what we can do every day of the of the week. Um, yeah, I, I, I maybe you know have have time, obviously, family and stuff like that. But you 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 put the effort in, mm-hmm. and, and that's the best way. And when I go back and look, um, the, those those success stories, those those people that look like they're continuously lucky, I, I can tell you that those are the guys that are generally putting 100 to 120 hours a week. Like two, I don't even track hours. You just you just you're so passionate about it, and that's they're obsessive me, in what they yeah, do. Yeah, obsessive, and I and I and I really do think it comes to passion, passion for for trying to succeed, passion for for taking a challenge and seeing if there's a better way. And uh, and I just um, you know I, I just uh, I, I've I've met many individuals that, that that have had that track record. Some would argue I've had a pretty lucky track record in terms of what we've been able to build when I start off, you know, the original Wheaton River way back in 1993 and what that was all the way through to what we've created through Gold Corp and, and now Wheaton Precious Metals and, uh, and so on. Um, but it, it just comes down to putting the effort in. That's the, we can't control the luck. Um, you know, there's, there's no doubt that the more we educate ourselves, the hopefully the better educated mm-hmm. Guesses that we make, as I will say, a lot of times with geology, it's not an exact science, and so you do have to make those guesses. So, so focus on how well you're educated. Focus on your exposure. Focus on what you've seen, what you've learned, and put the effort in, and it should eventually pay off. When you're applying effort, and and this is something I've thought about for a while, is how much should be focused on the depth of a particular opportunity or the breadth of opportunities. And people Mm -hmm. that I've noticed that have been sort of serially successful is they're constantly involved in a number of different things or a number of different projects. I mean, you know as well as I do and many people listening to this that the the chance of any one exploration project working out is minimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like, how do, how are those people or companies uh, sort of exposing themselves to as many opportunities as possible with it, while still giving each opportunity the attention that it deserves? I, uh, that's not a very easy question to answer, but well, it, it's something it, it, I, it, I wonder about. I actually about. do think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, to me, and, and, I, and I mentioned it earlier on, I'm a generalist. Uh, I don't consider myself a specialist. I've always said, I, you know, to be a specialist is to narrow yourself, your range of knowledge down. And I think there are people that 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 are much better at that than I am. Mm-hmm. I get bored too quick, and so I like knowing a little bit about a lot uh, versus a lot about a little bit. <laughs> and uh, so, what it really comes down to when it comes to things like that is making sure that you recognize that when it comes to focused effort into a particular area. You know, the broader your reach, the the better the chance that you capture something. But you have to make sure that you have the right people on those focused projects. You got to right. make sure you have the right team, and that's that's what really comes down to. Is in any company, any corporate situation, in terms of building success, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. But smarter than you, you know, doesn't mean they have the same general uh, expanse. But but I, I can tell you, um, you know, having the right people surrounding you, making the decisions on those projects, 
and you know how do you define the right people i mean obviously that's something that's just going to come over time and 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 you know, we all do make mistakes I and mean, you know, we say the biggest challenge is taking your mistakes and make them lessons um but having the right team around you to to apply that focus on all, each of those individual opportunities on a go forward basis really improves the chances of success in the long run and so i would say it's the strength of the team that you have and that's a team of specialists that's mm-hmm. a team that that they themselves narrow down on that focus area that they're that they're responsible for and they themselves will bring in specialists that even focus on the narrow decisions going on the way forward but make sure you provide the support make sure you provide the freedom and i, I think that's the other thing that you that, that is important is that as is that you want people to be free thinkers when it comes to how to go forward you don't want to have them come in such a rigid structured environment that they don't have the ability to be uh, creative you want to instill and 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 drive that creativity and so, so is that a bit about sort of creating room to experiment and room to fail and oh yeah and, yeah. yeah and exactly creating room to fail you know if, if we don't fail we never learn don't be scared to fail. <laughs> you have to. Um, uh, if you don't fail, you don't learn. That's, that's where the biggest lessons come from, uh, is, is from our failures. So, so. Uh, there's a question I like to ask around that. And are there any failures that, that you've had, either personally or co- the companies you've worked for, Silver Wheaton, Wheaton Precious, what have you, that at the time seemed catastrophic or, or very hard, but actually turned out to be... Uh, a great opportunity or taught you guys a lesson that you were able to apply down the road that you might not have been able to achieve later success had that not occurred? Well, I would argue um, the very first stream that we did was the very first stream that we ever did, that Mm -hmm. anyone ever did. And we recognized, uh, and in fact, just recently, and it's one of our successes from 2018, was the renegotiation of the the San Damas stream and, and ultimately the takeover of Primero from, by First Majestic and, and sort of facilitating that whole process, but also adjusting that stream so it was sustainable. That first stream was not sustainable, and uh, Gold Corp bore the burden of that. Now, Gold Corp's benefit was, was that they received all the equity in Silver Wheaton and so therefore generated well over $2 billion in total value. Uh, for Gold Corp's credit. Um, Primero, who bought the asset off of Gold Corp, never had that same benefit. And, and it was a burden that was just too strong, and we recognized that. And so, so um, you know, we were... It was a very, very challenging process. And I, if I sit back and look at our accomplishments last year, uh, this one ranks right up there as being an incredible um, uh, success considering how bad it was uh, beforehand. Primero had been suffering uh, from, from the burden of the stream. It was We were taking too much of the value yeah. from the mine, and we had to reduce the amount of value we pulled from the mine. And so, so very happy now. We've got First Majestic in there running it. The stream is greatly reduced. It's about 40% of the value that it originally was, but it's sustainable. It's, it's, it's livable. And so I, you know, I would say that there's... That, you know, one one of the fails was the very first stream we ever did. We were focused too much on the Gold Corp side, yeah. not enough on the Silver Wheat at that time, Silver Wheaton side, in terms of sustainability of the actual stream. And when Gold Corp didn't own the mine anymore, the new owner couldn't survive. And uh, and so yeah, it's a, there's a good example. So, you know, this is something I've wondered about a lot. When if I'm an investor at home and I'm looking to invest in a mining company and there is a stream on that or there will potentially be a stream on that 
is there a way that I can evaluate whether that will be a sustainable stream, whether it will be too onerous on the operation? Yeah. And I know it's, I mean, you guys do that all the time and you've got a system in place to ensure that. But for someone without a technical background, what are some key things they should be looking for that a stream is sustainable? Well, the first test that we do on any opportunity that we look at is the operating margins of the asset itself. And we want to ensure that if we have a stream on that asset, that the that there's still healthy operating margins and profit margins for the operator. If the operator's not happy, if the operator's not not making money, the mine shuts down. We get right. nothing. Um, you know, one of the one of the advantages we get is that we get a percentage of whatever metal is produced from the mine. If the mine isn't producing metal, <laughs> it doesn't matter what big that yeah. percentage is, zero, you know, 25% of zero is still zero. And so we have to make sure that the mine is, it's, it's the streamer's interest to ensure that, that the mine is profitable. And, and again, I would argue that that's one of the huge advantages of streaming over royalties is that because we have a contractual arrangement, um, we focus on, and, and we at Wheaton Precious have, 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 plenty of case history of going back and looking at contracts mm-hmm. to make sure that they get renegotiated such that the, the, the partner is healthy. If our partners aren't healthy, we're not healthy. So from an investing perspective, though, is to getting back to your question, the first thing you should always look at on any asset is, is the operating margins of that asset based on commodity prices. Now, the commodity price is up to the investor as to what they want to put in yeah. there. But what are the margins? How much are they making on a per ounce or a per pound basis going forward? And then have a look at what the stream impact is. Now, keep in mind, the stream supplies capital up front that is very, very attractive. It dramatically improves the internal rate of return on any project or acquisition or any investment because we don't dilute the shareholders. And the amount of capital we contribute towards any specific um, uh, asset is... Is, uh, is substantially more than the portion of revenue we take away from. And so there's a lot of advantages up front that those shareholders would get in that company if the stream was in place. Mm-hmm. But the key thing that they have to check is to ensure that there's healthy operating margins at the mine. And what I can should assure you that, that we look at that all the time. We yeah. study all of our partnerships on an ongoing basis, the existing ones and potential future ones, to make sure that our partners are profitable. Is there a range of healthy margins you typically expect to see someone in? Well, I, th- I think it all depends on the different commodities and different mm-hmm. where you are in the commodity price cycle, right? Um, you know, we like to see margins in excess of fifteen to twenty percent at the in the operator's hands post stream. Uh, that's that's a you know sort of a, at a minimum. We want to see things in that range or or even higher on an operating basis. Okay, so I'm going to take us back again. You graduated university with a geological engineering degree. Mm-hmm. Did you start working with uh, Wheaton River right away, or did you have several so the jobs the original prior? Wheaton River resources, which ultimately you know, created Silver Wheaton out of and then turned into Gold Corp, uh, it was a company that was created in the early 90s. I think it was 1991. Um, and they, the reason it's named Wheaton River is there's a, their first project was the Mount Skookum mine up in uh, the Yukon, which isn't really a mine. I don't think it ever ap- operated more than six months or a couple of months. But uh, it was in the Wheaton River Valley, mm-hmm. and so that's where the name came from. Is the Wheaton River Valley up in up in uh, up in the Yukon? I wouldn't call it a, a hugely successful mining district, but uh, the name kind of stuck. Um, their second asset that they acquired in Wheaton River was an asset called the Golden Bear Mine in northern BC, and uh, I had worked at Golden Bear with uh, Homestake. Homestake owned it, and in fact, Wheaton River bought it off of Homestake. 
And, uh, and it's, this is one of the areas where I think I was very lucky in my career is because I got hired by Wheaton River to come in and, uh, and with a team of explorationists, within a year we found three um, very attractive gold deposits um, uh, that were heap leachable, which was different than the historical operations at this Golden Bear Mine. And so um, we had to get very creative, but I started off as sort of one of the exploration geologists working on this project. Uh, uh, I then became the project manager and led it all the way through the feasibility study. I then um, you know, finished off the feasibility study, and uh, they tossed me the keys and said, okay, go build it. <laughs> and so I had the benefit of actually building this mine and all the way through construction and then getting up and running, and then I became the mine manager. Um, because it was a fly-in, fly-out operation, and I actually still had the title project manager. We had a mine manager, and we just cross-shifted each other. Yep. But uh, it gave me the benefit of being an explorationist, right from the discovery trench to looking at that to designing the drill program to building the geological model to building the, the block model to coming up with the mine scheduling, the optimizations, pushing it all the way through. And now I'm standing in the pit trying to figure out why this grade is so much higher, in this case, so much higher than what we'd forecast. The mine was a very profitable mine, small scale, but a very profitable <laughs> Those are mine. good problems to have. They were great Unusual problems. problems. But, but the key point is, is that there's not many people in this industry that get to take a project from discovery to production. Yeah. In fact, I, I did the, uh, the reclamation permit, although I, didn't, I left the project before the reclamation, before the project was finished, but I even went through the reclamation planning of the project. And again, I, I've said several times, I'm a, I've always prided myself on being a generalist, but it was a great experience because it allowed me to gain the respect that I think is required for the geologists, for the engineers, for mm. the metallurgists. We only have success if we all work together in terms of trying to find that. And I've always sort of prided myself on being a, a bit of a hybrid, a bit of an in-between. I know enough about geology to be dangerous, know enough about engineering to be dangerous, but as long as I stay happily in between and make sure I've got the right geos and right engineers working for me, we can have success. And uh, and so so it was a great experience. So it was all the way through until 2000, Wheaton River um, at that point was a company that I think we had about a $22 million market cap. And um, and we had 40-some-odd million cash in the bank. So we were trading below cash on hand. And uh, and we still had a mine that was producing healthy gold, but that's how bad the gold market was in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's when uh, Ian Telfer came on board as the new CEO, and we uh, brought in a bunch of new shareholders and decided to use Wheaton River as the vehicle to build uh, the objective. Ian's clearly stated objective at that time was to build the best gold company in the world. And shortly thereafter, there was a merger with Gold Corp. Well, it wasn't shortly thereafter. That was in 2000. Okay. So shortly thereafter, we made we started making acquisitions. And so I left that the Golden Bear Mine, and yeah. it was still running up in, in northern Canada. But I left that mine and, and came down corporate and started doing project evaluations where I'm flying around the world looking at uh, potential acquisitions. And our, our first acquisition was the San Damas Mines in, in Mexico. And we bought those in 2001. Uh, we bought the uh, Alambrera and Peak Mines in 2002. Uh, bought a couple of development projects in 2003 and 2004 and started building up Wheaton River into, into you know, the company that it was. And so Gold Corp came along in about 2005. Um, uh, was, it was an interesting one because uh, Rob McEwen, of course, had built up Gold Corp yep. large, largely based just on Red Lake. Uh, he'd, he'd, uh, he'd, you know, the high-grade zone, he'd uh, been mining <clears throat> that for quite a while. And uh, 
uh, he actually approached us and, and, and said that he, he liked our management style. He liked the company. He thought that putting Wheaton River and Gold Corp together, he was a larger company than us at that time, but he, he thought that he liked our management style and wanted us to uh, take over, put the two companies together, and we would take over management, and hence the name change to Gold Corp. So. Okay. So, you know, I'm just thinking about uh, sort of your progression from geologist to engineer to corporate and, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of young technical people, engineers and geologists that listen to these podcasts. And I get questions a lot from people who are from a technical background. Maybe they've got five or 10 years experience and they're interested in getting into the corporate business financial side of the industry. Uh, you've obviously made that progression very well. Uh, but I think it is a hurdle that a lot of technical folks aren't quite sure how to jump over or a little bit intimidated by. Mm -hmm. Is there any advice you'd have for how to approach, if you're already working for a mining company or an exploration company, how to approach um, educating yourself in that area and sort of making that step into a more corporate role? Well, and, and, I, and I think it comes down to exposure to business decisions as opposed to technical decisions. It helps if you're the son of an auctioneer. I, I still thank my dad for, for, for that kind of exposure because all the way through from when I was eight years old, my dad uh, you know, started his auction company. And, uh, and I can tell you that, as I've said, uh, you want to meet you know, business decisions and quick, on your feet thinking uh, about value and uh, yeah. creating value and, and, and preserving value. An auction hall is one of the best places to see that in process. And so I had the benefit of, of, of a very good business education long before I even became a geologist and engineer, uh, or geological engineer. Um, and so it really does come down to that. If you don't have that exposure, um, you know, the traditional way to do that is go get an MBA. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, and sometimes, you know, that, that does work. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's what I think you have to sort of push yourself towards is, is just trying to get a bit more of that exposure on, on a business side and recognize, you know, instead of stopping at the feasibility study, look at how the company's going to have to finance this thing going forward if yeah. you're involved in that perspective, right? You push yourself down that path. Recognize that, that you know, there is a broader... Um, uh, a broader market or a broader need that we that we have to satisfy here as a, as an industry as a whole. And if you want to understand more about the corporate side, you've got to start looking at it from a corporate perspective. And so, you know, I do think that that's that's probably one of the keys is just trying to get yourself that exposure uh, from a business perspective, just to see what we've um, you know what what goes beyond the completion of the technical studies or the, uh, yeah. or the engineering or the optimization studies. Right? So it's sort of a willingness to just push your way in there and to, yeah, yeah. all don't, right. Don't be scared to step outside of your boundaries. I, I mean, we all get comfort zones. Um, you know, as I've said earlier on, I said a couple of times, if you don't fail, you're not learning. So you've, you got to step out of your comfort zones every once in a while. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's, that's how you, you, that's how you, that's the best way to learn. And I think, I mean, I think I speak from my own perspective of this. A lot of engineers uh, and technical people are intimidated by the idea of raising money and, and some of those corporate aspects. And I've worked on teams that are almost all engineers. I've worked on teams that are largely accountants. And it's a very different uh, view of the challenges and how to address them and how to look at these projects. Um, I've always said that... Uh the true sign of a death in, in, in any type of a resource-based company is if there's more accountants than there are technical <laughs> people. <laughs> you've you've got you to understand that 
the the financial side, you know, um, it's tough to take a bad deposit or a bad ore body and make it good through accounting. <laughs> but I suppose it's not hard to go the other way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll leave accountants alone for the moment. Um, today, uh, Wheaton Precious, $11 billion company. Royalties and streaming is becoming, as I've seen it over the last few years, a more popular and a more competitive space. Um, every time I look around, there is a new streaming or royalty company built on the back of <laughs> maybe one royalty that might be producing cash in the hopefully not so distant future. Um, and what I see from the outside is it is becoming more competitive uh, to find great streams, to find great royalties. So two questions. How do you guys continue to grow and create value for your shareholders? And, you know, is there room in this space for new companies to come online or are we due for a consolidation? Um, well, okay, so I'll answer the, the first one. How do we continue to grow? I mean, the, the, one, the one aspect that we, we also are dealing with is that streaming has now become very widely accepted mm-hmm. as a source of capital when it comes to making acquisitions or, or expansion or, or, or greenfields investment or expansion of existing operations. As a source of capital, it is a very competitive source of capital. And, and so every single mining company that has a capital need, which is all of them eventually, because yep. this is a very capital-intensive industry, they, those CFOs now have to consider uh, streaming as a source of capital in terms of how they raise their capital, whatever the capital needs are. So the opportunity set is substantially larger than what it was when we started this company back in 2004. For the first, well, for the first two years, we didn't advertise the streaming model at all. Uh, it was only 2007 that we seriously got aggressive about trying to convince people that they should do streams. But I, I will tell you, from 2007 through to about 2011 or 12, most people would, what's a stream? And, and they just wouldn't, uh, they weren't comfortable with it because it was just unknown. We now can honestly say, and no pun intended, but it is, but streaming has become mainstream. Yeah. It's, it's now, um, as a source of capital, widely accepted. And so although there's um, a lot more companies doing the streams, there's also a lot more opportunities out there for us to look at. Every time any company looks at capital, they have to explore the streaming side. Not saying that it always is going to be there as part of the capital solution, but they have to at least explore it. Every CFO responsibly needs to do that to, to, to show credit to, you know, to their shareholders that they're uh, assessing the best sources. Now, that being said, you know, the ultimate compliment is when you get copied and we are getting complimented a lot uh, in the streaming <laughs> model um, there you know every time we turn around there seems to be another one and, and I, your description is actually very good they tend to try and hang it on one one uh, decent you know cash flowing or small scale cash flowing asset and, and put a bunch of other stuff on it and, and then fluff it up consolidation um, I, I will tell you that the the best investment that we've made in our history was the actual acquisition of Silverstone in terms of a return on what we paid for it. Um, so we did have a competitor in the silver space uh, back in, in 2007, 2008, and in 2009 we decided to take them over. And it, it has, even though the assets weren't of high enough, like they, don't, they didn't fit our quality criteria, they were lesser quality, lower margin assets, um, but they have performed relatively well. 
um, over that time and for what we paid for it, it was a very attractive one. And so consolidation is always going to be an opportunity uh, uh, within the space. We we do really focus on, uh, and I'm going to steal a quote from Mark Bristow, who's you know uh, had great success in terms of the Barrick Grand Gold. We focus on tier one assets. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I don't know if we go with a full definition of of, of, of Barrick, but I mean all of our assets are in the bottom half of the respective cost curves, and so you know uh, a lot of these assets that uh, that are out there struggling for capital right now, they don't really sort of fit our profile, and so um, we we do we are very selective about what we invest into. We'll continue to be. We've got a long track record of doing that, and our existing portfolio shows that. Uh, and so we just continue to focus on that side, and we'll we'll let some of these other guys take steps into that place. Um, I can tell you the reason we, you know, we, we the reason the Silverstone acquisition was attractive for us is because they made a mistake. And when when these smaller companies make a mistake and invest into an asset that say shuts down within months of of them making an investment into it, then uh, then I think that opens up opportunities for cons- consolidation. Um, uh, one of the concerns that I have, uh, but it does possibly read into opportunities for us, is that um, I really I think people underestimate how technical this running a company like this. People look at a streaming company and think it's a bit of a financial uh, house, and I really do think that you have to have strong technical discipline. We are making investments into assets that that are life of mine and we're paying value for an asset that, that we're making assumptions based on geology, based on engineering, based on metallurgy. And so you better be good at that. Uh, and I, and I see, you know, some of these, uh, new streaming entities, small scale streaming entities being run by people that are financial, uh, experts, but I, I'm concerned that they don't have enough technical expertise in terms of making their decisions. And, and you can look, and there's plenty of examples out there of companies that have suffered from, from that, a little bit too much financial expertise or financial engineering and not enough geological and mining and, mm-hmm. uh, and metallurgical engineering. And, uh, and so that ultimately could open up opportunities for us. So consolidation, that's a natural part of any cycle, um, you know, as, as, as any business. It's not just a streaming business. If you start getting a, a bigger population, eventually uh, some of the weaker parts of that population will be swallowed up by the, uh, by the rest of the uh, uh, community. So. Yeah, so I think, I think you make a very uh, good point in that unlike a lot of um, sections of the mining sector where people really appreciate the technical complexity involved in that. I don't know if people can hear that giant horn going off outside. Uh, the noon, noon bell. <laughs> the noon bell here in Vancouver Harbor. Um, as I was saying, though, I think streaming has such a financial element to it that it is very easy. It's it does almost seem like a no-brainer the way you describe it. It's so obviously uh, accretive and there's a lot of value there that I think people can underestimate the underlying technical complexity of these projects and think, oh, yeah, no, we'll turn the mine on and it's going to produce X ounces of silver or gold per year and we're going to have this much cash flow and it's easy and we can run this company with two people here in our office in Vancouver and there's not a, a technical person in sight and, and, and you see more than one group has gotten themselves in trouble that way. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, in the end, the amount of metal that's going to be produced from these assets is a function of what, what uh, you know, what, how well 
Uh, the geologists and the engineers and the metallurgists have all done their own estimates in terms of um, capacity, in terms of costs, in terms of uh, you know, in terms of grade, and and uh, and so uh, that's never underestimate how important that is because because you know the one thing about streaming is that uh, all the money is up front. You invest, you buy this. It's a big upfront payment going forward, and then after that, you you um, you ride the risk reward. What you know, what we really focus on is trying to take a lot of that risk out by focusing on assets that have very healthy operating margins, and have great exploration potential and expansion potential. Um, you know, it's one of the hidden benefits is that when, when, when you're looking for assets that deliver high margins to their operators and you know, obviously high margins to us, but to, to their operators, it's also going to be the first place that they reinvest back into. And so, um, you know, by focusing on assets down in that, that range, it just it greatly in, increases our, uh, our chances of being lucky, so to speak, of, of having these assets grow and deliver value. But a lot of that comes back to having the right technical people trying to identify where we have those upside, um, where we have those upside opportunities. But more importantly, and I've, and I've said this in many an internal staff meeting here, we got to celebrate the no's, the, the projects that we've stayed away from and we've watched other companies mm-hmm. do streams on and fail on. Um, you know, uh, we, we should celebrate those as much as we do the successes because, you know, so it, it, it's tough to say no in, in the... When a project gets brought forward and it's and the team's excited and they're going to build it and they've got this financing and yeah. for, to be a geologist that is doing a resource evaluation and coming up and saying, "Wow, this biography doesn't look right," or "Wow, this metallurgy is off," to to stand up and be able to put your hand in the face of that forward momentum and say something's wrong here, you have to make sure that you give your technical teams that capa- that capacity, that that space, that freedom to stand up and say it doesn't look right. Right, and so uh, we we celebrate our no's as much as we do our yeses. That's a hard thing to, that's a hard thing to uh, prepare for because I mean, people want to do things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a lot of fun saying no or stopping a progress. Like, what's the longest you guys have ever waited between deals? Well, there's there's certain times to do deals and there's times not to. Um, we we any company any business, um, any uh, any sector that has cyclical pricing, mm-hmm. there's times to make acquisitions and there's times not to. And so we went three years without any transactions between 2010, late 2009, all the way through to 2013, without any transactions. And the number of people that told me that the streaming model was broken because we weren't doing deals. Well, no, the reason we weren't doing deals is because commodity prices were so high that the expectations uh, of what we were going to pay for metal were beyond reason uh, from our perspective and so we limited ourselves we have to recognize that that every every uh, in any any commodity uh, that that is cyclical the only time that it's worth investing into that commodity is near the bottom of its price cycle yeah obviously you can find assets that have expiration success that'll deliver value and, and you know without commodity price but when it comes down to the pricing you want to be investing at the at the in the troughs and in the valleys. It's no different than any other uh, um, even equity investments. Um, you, you know, buying things that are high just doesn't doesn't deliver value in the long run. And in fact, usually you wind up having to get helped out or repaired or you know. And so um, so yeah, we've 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 been patient. We recognize people always ask me how many deals are going to do this year. I said I don't know, and I and I've never ever we have never ever. Uh, set any type of a number, even internally, mm-hmm. because I don't want 
anyone to feel like an obligation that they have to go forward. I, I'm, I, I've, and I've been upfront with my shareholders. I don't have a problem if a year from now, we haven't done any transactions from here to over the over this over this next year because here's what I do know is that we'll have about 600 plus million of free cash flow coming right back in to add to the balance sheet to wait until we get the right opportunity to invest and so I, I we can afford to be patient we don't need to be aggressive we are not um, a, a deal machine yeah we just do deals all the time we patiently wait for the right times to make accretive investments into quality assets and and those are few and far between do you have any systems to help sort of instill that discipline within your staff you know um it's an approach that because it's unusual like, it's really well, unusual. no i mean here's uh, you know <laughs> i mean we do have uh, one sort of path that i think does help us is that when it comes to when it comes to assigning a value to an opportunity, mm-hmm. um, you have to have some type of an opinion as to what the price of gold is going to be five years from now, ten years from now, thirty years from now. We will. I am very bullish on the price of gold. I'm very bullish on the price of silver. I'm very bullish on precious metals as a whole, palladium, and and I actually think cobalt is going to do very well over time. But I'm not going to risk my shareholders' capital on my beliefs because I'm no smarter than the next guy when it comes to commodity prices. In right. fact, I've got a horrific track record of predicting what the price is going to be tomorrow. <laughs> you know, uh, you know and, and I have to say, analysts aren't any better either. Uh, I have not seen anyone that can accurately predict. I, I, I still vividly remember, uh, uh, I think it was 2012, uh, Denver Gold Show. Uh, the optimism was, you know, overflowing with respect to the gold market and silver up over $40 an ounce and gold up over uh, $1,800 an ounce. And within a month, silver had dropped, you know, $15. And there wasn't a single expert at one of the largest precious metal gatherings on the planet uh, that had predicted, you know, any of that shortfall. Yeah. You know, and so here's what you have to do is you have to, you have to, even though I'm bullish on that, I will not risk my shareholders' capital and my beliefs. And so we constantly invest based on a, a downward curve going forward. That's how we value our assets is what kind of a commodity price do we use on a go-forward basis. It's going to be less than it is today. What I can promise my shareholders is that whenever we make an investment, we'll get a reasonable rate. If the, if the commodity price stays flat, we'll get a reasonable rate of return. But if the commodity price goes, then that's when we hit it out of the park. And we've got a great track record of that, obviously. Um, but the key trigger that we use is that, uh, you know, analyst consensus long-term pricing is really just a trailing average of where the price has been. Yeah. You know, some of the analysts might think they've got better science behind it, but guess what? It's the trailing average of where the price has been, and it's very slow to respond. And so the one restriction that we put in to sort of limit our own risk profiles is that we'll never pay more than analyst consensus long term. So when silver shoots from $16 an ounce to $48 an ounce, the limiting factor that we have to make sure that we don't do any silly investments while in silver is trading at $48 an ounce is because analyst long-term consensus was still down around $16 or $17 an ounce. And so right, yeah, um, it just stopped us from doing any transactions. We put out in that three-year period, we put out over $4 billion in proposals. But all the proposals were based on a long-term silver price. And at that time, we were focused mostly on silver. Uh, of somewhere down around $16 to $18. And when silver's trading at $40, no one's going to sell us a silver at $16. And so it just limited us from investing into that period. I think it's got a natural sort of tempering ability that stops us, would have stopped us from making probably some foolish investments if we'd have been pricing it based on what the 
you know, the marketplace was estimating. So, so very, very, it, it works. It functions in terms of holding us back from, uh, from chasing commodity prices. Okay. Um, yeah. And I mean, looking at your track record, looking at the way you've chosen assets and made investments, a lot of your um, assets have worked out even better than you had anticipated or than planned for. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I will say that a lot of our assets also didn't deliver as fast as they were supposed to, mm-hmm. um, and so um, theory says we're better engineer or we're better geologists than we are engineers. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, it's. Uh, but one of the things that we do look at is prospective terrains. Um, you know, what limits? I have to say, one of the things right off the bat, underground mines are very, very expensive for companies to develop. Yeah. Long term reserves and resources in front because underground access is tough and very expensive. And so, you know, some of our biggest producers are assets that have never had more than 10 years of reserves in front of them, and yet Zinc Groovin in Sweden, 160 years of continuous operation. Uh, Yaliyaku in Peru, uh, over 200 years of continuous operation. San Damas, um, uh, probably, well, the, the, the Spaniards, when they first settled into Mexico, uh, uh, started mining in San Damas. So 500 years and, and, and at least 200 years of continuous operations. And none of those assets have ever had more than 10 years of reserves in front of them, even to this day, huh. because they can't afford to drill out that far. Yeah. So recognizing opportunities like that, um, you know, those assets never seem to get valued as, as much as these big, huge copper porphyry open pits that get drilled off and define a 30-year mine life in front of it. And, and sure, your confidence level is high, but... You know, give me a mine that's been operating for 154 years continuously, and yeah, it only has 10 years, but there's no sign of it ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would take that. You know, and so you know, it it, it does come down to um, looking for for um, you know prospective terrains, uh, prospective geology, where the expansion potential is clear and is 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 definitely there, and then making sure that there that the assets are so profitable in our partners' portfolios that you know the partners are going to want to invest into that exploration too. Right. And there's yeah. times we've actually gone back, and again, one of the advantages of the stream, it's a contractual agreement. We've gone back with some of our existing partners and incentivized them to push exploration dollars in to try and help. And, and I will say that there's a particular mine in Greece, Stratoni, that was scheduled to shut down several years ago, but a combination of working with the current owners, uh, El Dorado, to try and incentivize them and compensate them for a bit of exploration drilling has now given us a four- to five-year additional mine life beyond what we expected when we even bought the asset. And so, you know, it, it comes down to partnerships. I can't hammer that home enough. One of the reasons that we've had such great success in this company is because we focus on partnerships. We look for ways to work with our partners. The healthier they are, the healthier we are. So... I want to talk a little bit about challenges and setbacks that um, Wheaton Precious has faced over the last few years. Uh, from an outsider's perspective, the one that comes to mind is, of course, the case that you had with the CRA hmm. over the last several years. Would you be able to sort of give us the Coles Notes version of what that consisted of and, and how it was uh, eventually resolved? Sure. Um, so streaming is, um, is uh, you know, the very first stream we ever created, of course, was down in Mexico, and it was on the San Damas mine. And, and so before we created the company, we studied it. And, um, and, and the way streams are set up is the operating companies are responsible for paying all the taxes in 
the jurisdiction where it's where the metal is being mined. That's the way it should be. That's where the resource is being mined. That's the mm-hmm. country that's contributing its resource to society, and that's where the taxes should be. And so that's the structure that we set up in place in streams, is that there can't be any tax leakage as the result of a stream. Because if there is, then countries won't allow them, right? You have to make sure that the country still receives all the tax revenue it normally would have without a stream. So when we set up Silver Wheaton originally, we did have concerns that if we uh, if we took the ownership of those international streams and brought them into Canada, we were a bit concerned that... Uh, that um, well, we we just felt it was better to set that up in an international office, just to make sure that we didn't run the risk of being taxed in Canada. We studied the laws of Canada and determined that that's the best way to do it was have a Canadian head office, but with an international subsidiary that uh, operated and actively managed all the streams outside of Canada. Um, there and and we also made a decision that any streams we owned inside Canada would be taxable here in Canada, and we would actually pay taxes on on those streams. So that's the way we set up the company. That was well within the laws of of, of Canada, and 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 very clear. We uh, we uh, we established it appropriately. Well, uh, the CRA uh, notified us that they wanted to uh, um, conduct an audit on our company, mm-hmm. and we, in the efforts of of full disclosure, uh, highlighted the fact that we were being audited, and they were they wanted to audit our international operations, and so we we published it. Uh, you know, notified our, our shareholders through the. Um, uh, quarterly report that uh, that an audit uh, the CRA had commenced an audit in 2012. A couple of newsletter writers hypothesized that we were going to get taxed on all our international income here in Canada, which we didn't believe. You know that's not the way the laws of Canada are established. Yeah. Canada, in order to maintain international competitiveness, Canada has quite simple and clear laws that state that Canadian corporations um, um, do not pay taxes in Canada on foreign actively managed foreign operations. Um, they, they're not taxable here in Canada. As long as they file the appropriate tax returns and pay the appropriate taxes in those foreign jurisdictions, they are not taxable in Canada. Typically, we had traded at a premium to our peers uh, in the group, and, uh, and we rapidly lost that premium, and in fact, started trading at a significant discount um, on the belief that somehow we were ultimately going to be taxable for all our worldwide income in Canada. Right. Um, sure enough, in 2015, uh, I will point out five days before they were going to become statute barred, um, the CRA came forward with a proposal on uh, or a, a reassessment on, and it was based on transfer pricing. It was saying that we didn't charge enough for the services that we provide from Vancouver, from our head office here in Vancouver, and and vice versa. And, and so fact, this is the services the technical financial teams here provide teams. to your foreign subsidiaries, or exactly, yeah, right. okay, exactly right. And in fact, um, through and I don't understand where this logic comes from to this date. I still don't understand where this logic comes from. Not only weren't we charging enough for it, we should be charging the net income of our foreign income uh, of our foreign subsidiary. And so we fought it. We um, uh, immediately appealed it into the tax court system because we wanted to get it out of the CRA's hands and into the courts because we felt this was a matter of law. Right. The law is very clear, and uh, mm-hmm. and so we took it into the tax court system. Um, we went through the discovery process. I personally spent ten days on the stand myself answering questions because I'm the only person in this company that's been here since we since we created the company back in 2004. So I personally spent ten days myself, along with some of our other staff, on the stand going through the discovery process, and that was finished off early in 2018. We were willing to sit at the table and discuss settlement um, towards a settlement, which we announced in December of last year. 
Um, the approach that we've taken is normally the services we do provide from this office, um, standard practice for services, intercompany services and transfer pricing is to take anything and market up by 20%. Yeah. That's sort of a normal course operating profit level for any service provider, whether it's consultants yeah, yeah, or yeah. lawyers and such. What we've agreed to do with the CRA to, uh, to get this case dropped was to increase our 20% markup to a 30% markup. Okay. So um, what that will result in is about $700,000 in additional costs here in Canada on a per-year basis, which is very attractive compared to the $1.2 billion potential liability that we had uh, on a on a past case, plus on a NAV impact going forward, another billion dollars. So well over $2 billion in potential risk. We have turned into a uh, essentially a $7 million settlement for the past years, plus $700,000 cost on a go-forward basis. A clear, clear victory. The advantages of this settlement, you know, some might ask, why didn't you go to, if you're so confident, why didn't you take it to trial? The trial, the, the reassessment in the trial would have covered the years 2005 to 2010, but it wouldn't have covered subsequent years. And winning a, right. winning yeah. a case in trial would, first off, that would still be up for an appeal, but secondly, subsequent years would also be up to this. This settlement that we have is a principled settlement. It states quite clearly that as long as we maintain our same business model, that there's no issues. We don't have any issues on a go-forward basis. So we have tax. We've gone from one end of the tax risk scale in terms of having the market interpreting us as having some, some tax risk all the way to the other end. We have a clear settlement agreement signed by proper authorities on both the tax court and the CRA side and by us that we are not taxable on our foreign income yeah. And that we, as long as we don't change our business model and as long as we mark up our services provided out of the Vancouver office by 30% instead of 20%, uh, that we are not taxable on that. Now, we are still clawing back some of this value. Um, I would say that we were trading at a substantive discount to our peers, and it's pretty easy to look at any of the market metrics to see, especially considering we're pure precious metals. Mm-hmm. And we have the highest quality portfolio of the entire streaming space. And I would actually say, I think we've got the highest quality portfolio of the entire precious metal space. Our assets are 96% in the bottom half of the respective cost curves. There's no company out there that has that many assets, that diversified of a portfolio, that has that high of a quality level. Um, So we have the highest quality asset portfolio. We are pure precious metals, which should command a premium. We're not diluting anything with oil and gas or with base metal production. Um, and so that in itself should also command a premium in value. Uh, we have um, we have a long ways to climb before we get back up to that premium multiple. And so there's a, there's definitely an opportunity to be investing into wheat and precious metals right now. So what, I mean, what's holding that back now? So you had potentially a multi-billion-dollar tax liability hanging over your head. That's gone now. Uh, you now have a level of a surety on your tax situation that is probably many companies would be envious of. Um, what is it that you think is holding the market back from bringing you up to that, that multiple that you'd previously been trading at? Well, so the decision came out uh, essentially a week before Christmas. Um, the, the, the mining industry, uh, the equity side of the mining industry right now does not have a lot of liquidity. So, I, you know, I do think that there was a so close to the end of the year that a lot of funds who traditionally haven't invested into us, they're not going to make those changes uh, dramatically Mm -hmm. right before the end of the year. 
Um, there is definitely an education effort on our side in terms of getting out there and and uh, and sharing this story and, and and reaffirming people. I can tell you that in the last month, I have met with a number of funds that sold our stock back in 2012 when the original um, audit was announced because they just they were concerned about the uh, the binary aspects of boy if they're wrong you know although it looks like they should be right if they're wrong. That's bad, and uh, and so they haven't held us since then. There's going to be a level of education as we sit down because they haven't been following our company for a long time. They haven't looked at our portfolio of assets. They don't understand what we've truly built here, which is an incredible precious metals company. You know, now more gold focused than silver, uh, but very very strong asset base and very strong and. Uh, growth profile going forward. We've got some incredible organic growth within our existing portfolio that's going to continue to push us over the next five, six years, um, and then great optionality on projects after that. And so, so we have to get out there and do the education. We've we've uh, embarked on a much more aggressive um, uh, investor relations uh, campaign over the last. Uh, you know, stuck in an extra trip into London to spend three days there talking to shareholders and fund managers, and, and we've got a pretty intensive campaign over the next month to just get the message out there. And so we are clawing it back. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we, have, we have done um, relatively well compared to our peers over the last month, month and a half, and I expect that we'll continue to do that until we get up to trading where we belong to be trading. And uh, I think more mining podcasts don't hurt either, probably. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's one of the reasons we're here right now. <laughs> so you're a busy guy. I want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, it's the middle of a Wednesday afternoon. So I want to finish on just a couple more quick questions. Sure. Um, again, I mentioned earlier, a lot of people who listen to this are younger people in the space who are sort of... Navigating their career. Um, and what I'm not going to do is ask you what's some good advice for them. What I want to ask you is what is some bad advice you see people given a lot in this space that you think they should avoid in order to have a, in order to do something unique and interesting? What is some bad advice? Yeah. In order to do something unique and interesting. Is there anything you hear people telling people in the space again and again that you disagree with? Well, you know, I, I, again, and and to to sound like a bit of a broken record here, but I just, I I can't underscore how important it is to have sound technical uh, advice, trust. And I just, I've seen so many um, investment bankers portray good package deals and and lay it all out and they've got the, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. we've had our geologists look at it and we've had our engineers look at it and see companies move forward. And I just, you know, I think that one of the challenges is, is, is ensuring that you've got good sound advice that you can trust that, 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 um, you know, that just helps guide in terms of how you go forward. And so I, I, you know, I, again, I, I go back to the fact that I, I truly believe that we don't um, we don't uh, uh, you know we don't measure. I mean that that's one of the appeals of the streaming industry as an investor from an investor's perspective compared to a mining industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we get we get called we get binned into the mining industry, but our risk profile is so different than a traditional mining company. And why? Because we've taken so many of those risks out of the equation about having the right geologist, the right engineer, the right technical opinion in terms of whether you want to make an investment into a mining company. Guess what? Um, it doesn't matter what the mining company thinks about the costs now because Wheaton has looked at this thing and come up with a, a method where we get access to these projects and cost isn't a risk anymore. 
Um, we've got a long track record of being very conservative in our own production forecasts and, and continually beat our production forecasts every year. And so we temper down our partners' forecasts, and that's why. So we deliver on quantity. We deliver on cost. The only other side of it is, is the commodity price. So, you know, they, again, that's, that's kind of one of the appeals of the streaming uh, industry as an investment vehicle into precious metals is that, is, that, is that we've taken so much of that risk out, that traditional risk that's very tough for, for most people to, to get. Um, and, and track record is, is usually the best way to determine whether you're getting sound technical advice. And, uh, and we've got a very good track record on that front. Do you have any advice for the people at home, your average retail investor who is not a technical expert, probably not a financial expert either, um, but they want exposure to mining metals, maybe particularly precious metals? Um, they're not going to be able to evaluate the finer points of a project by themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, few engineers or geologists can do that individually as well. How, how do they go about choosing the teams to back with their own money? Well, I mean, track record is, uh, is, is key, but, but you know, keep in mind, there's multiple ways to invest into a commodity. You can invest into the hard asset itself and buy mm-hmm. pounds of copper or ounces of gold and ounces of silver, um, or you can invest into mining companies or, or the third option, well, you can invest ETF, but that's all just the same as buying gold, the same return ratios and risk profiles. Um, but the third option, which a lot of times doesn't get separated, is where you can invest into the streaming space. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's important because, you know, the traditional resource investment. Now, if you're just buying gold, great. If gold goes up, you get that benefit. But there's no growth in gold. If you're just buying bullion ounces or an ETF, there's absolutely no growth. There's no leverage. There's no yield. You actually pay a fee. For, for someone storing that, you're either paying a fee to the ETF or you're paying a storage fee for bullion, uh, unless you're hiding it underneath your pillow. And, you know, and, uh, yeah. and so, <laughs> Some so other there's risks so, associated with that. So it's such a limited, where's the upside? The, ups, the only upside you have there is commodity price, and that's balanced with the downside on commodity price. Um, if you go into the mining space, the traditional mining space, well, okay, you can argue that you get leverage and... Uh, but one of the challenges that traditional mining companies have is, is, is that, you know, delivering on costs, even when commodity prices climb, if you go back and look over time, every time commodity prices have gone up, so have the operating costs. And so you don't get that same leverage, really, because, because you know, it's the profit that you're chasing, and that profit doesn't grow at the same rate that a commodity price grows, and so you don't get that same leverage. And so when I look at the streaming model, there's, there's four key components that you have to understand with any resource investment. Capital cost to deliver what the project is. The operating cost to produce the metal. The quantity of the metal that's going to be produced and the spot price of that metal, whatever it sells for. And the difference between the operating cost and the spot price is, of course, the operating profit. But those four variables are what you need to qualify a resource investment. You have to make, you're taking an opinion on all those four. Every time you make an investment into a traditional mining company, you're forming an opinion on those four variables. We streaming companies, we've taken three of those variables and made them, they're fixed, they're permanent. Mm-hmm. We've taken the capital cost, there's no surprises. We've taken the operating cost, there's no surprises. 
In terms of the quantity of the metal produced, we have a long track record, most streaming companies, but at Wheaton, we definitely have a long track record of, of delivering and beating our production forecasts, and so we've even taken the quantity risk out, which means that the only risk you have left, the only commodity, the only variable you have left is the spot price of the, of the metal, which is the same as you've got for the bullion. But we get the organic growth. We get the expiration potential. We deliver leverage. We deliver, um, we, we actually pay a dividend. We actually pay you to own our <laughs> stock. <laughs> and so there's no, there's no uh, fees for holding an ETF or bullion storage fees. We pay a dividend. We're 2% yields. We pay you to own our stock. Plus we have leverage. Plus we have organic growth potential. Plus you know you've got a sound team here that's continually looking for accretive acquisitions to continue growing the company going forward. And so it's just the streaming model has clearly got huge advantages over a traditional mining investment, uh, you know, a mining company, um, because we've taken so much of the risk out. I would argue the risk profile is pretty similar to just owning bullion, but the reward profile is the same as, in fact, it's better than the mining companies, mm-hmm. mainly because our costs are fixed. And so, you know, we've kind of got this, this, this you know, this precious metals investment on, on steroids. It's just, it's, it's, it just magnifies so many of the benefits in that. So, so I, you know, I think that's the argument behind investing into the streaming space. And then when you look in the streaming space, I think it's pretty clear that we are, we are by far, by far the most, uh, undervalued or most compelling valuation in terms of, uh, in, into the space. We are still clawing back from, from a burden that we've suffered from for eight years. Our shareholders have suffered from it for eight years. And we will get that value back. Um, the quality of the assets will ultimately carry the day. And, uh, and so as we claw our value back, our shareholders will be rewarded for their patience. And uh, new ones will, will come along for the ride. So, so um, yeah. I, uh, I don't think we're going to find a better place to end it than that. So thank you very much for taking the time today. Um, if people at home want to learn more about Silver Wheaton, where's the best place? Wheaton Precious Metals. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> First thing I need to do is learn how to say the right name. If people at home want to learn more about Wheaton Precious Metals, where do they find that? Well, uh, we've got a website with all sorts of contact information, investor relations. Uh, we present at uh, pretty well every conference out there. We'll be at PDAC and stuff like that. We, as I said, we are pushing really hard on the investor side. But uh, the website itself is wheatonpm.com. Uh, and uh, there's all sorts of contact information. You can reach out and uh, contact us, and we'll be happy to provide you all the information you need to to uh, to convince you to invest into our company. Great. Uh, I'm going to go home now and write Wheat and Precious Metals down 100 times on a chalkboard, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think we'll call that a podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.